This episode is brought to you by Paramount Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG 13. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. Welcome to episode 138 of TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. I'm Leslie Goldberg, West Coast TV editor, and I'm joined as always by my friend, co-host, and THR's chief TV critic, Dan Feinberg. Hi, Dan. What up, Leslie? Yeah, it's a good week. Wife's home from shooting in Vancouver uh, after 18 days, uh, so yeah, it's good. Uh, and we're and we're on to October, so yay October! Hope everyone had a good September. And uh, October, of course, can only mean one thing: playoff baseball. Spooky season. Oh, yeah, playoff baseball. Jeez, I can't. <laughs> if anyone can believe that, I just set Leslie up for that, and she decided to go with a Halloween-related transition as opposed to a baseball-related transition. It's like I don't even know you anymore, Leslie. I know. It's like I, I don't even know myself right now. Oh, boy. Well, anyway. I went, for the, I went for the broader angle, Dan. Instead, you know, I know our listeners are not always big fans when we talk baseball. Well, but, we're, uh, and we're not really going to talk baseball here. We we're just talking October. So we we might talk baseball in upcoming weeks, but, you know, not I, I mean, I'll talk baseball and say, like, I really hope the Dodgers can win the West because I don't want to go into the playoffs in a wild card. Um, but that's just me being greedy because we're slated to go into the playoffs either way. I was so. going to say, the, the Giants need to lose, and currently the Giants are not losing. Yeah. Ergo, nothing to be done about that. Um, anyway. Never underestimate the value of a contract season for a lot of these guys. Yeah. Thinking Giants. They're just playing out of their heads. Nothing nothing to be said about that. And obviously not just out of their heads, because you play 162 games, the best two teams do eventually end up towards the top. So anyway, it's the same team as last year. It's, it's the last couple of years. They're, they were terrible. It's the exact same team. What changed? Oh, yeah. They're like, oh, I guess I got to play good because I got to get paid next year. That is a very cynical attitude, Leslie, to think. I'm a Dodger the- fan. I have cynical things to say about Giants. And he- All right. And, enough. He- and heaven knows that the uh, the team in baseball with the highest payroll should definitely be cynical about the team with players playing for money. <laughs> Anyway, we've got a busy are the, podcast are, are, are those, here. Are those crickets that you hear? I, I think there's crickets, yeah. I, all I'm saying is we got a busy podcast ahead with several different guest segments, so we should probably get down to business. Let's lead off on the renewal front. Stars has given a speedy season two pickup to BMF, a passion project from executive producer 50 Cent. Own has revived the canceled CBS legal drama All Rise for a 20-episode third season. Paramount Plus is bringing the real-world homecoming back for two additional seasons. FXX has renewed Archer for season 13. HBO Max has renewed Comedy Central favorite The Other Two for a third run, and I should say former Comedy Central favorite The Other Two. Netflix is bringing back Sex Life for a second season and has handed out an early third season renewal for The Witcher and picked up Sex Education for a fourth season. And I should note, We'll have more on sex education in this week's Showrunner Spotlight featuring the show's creator, Lori Nunn, and it's a great interview. 
In series order news, Tara Duncan's Onyx Collective has handed out its first pickup to Reasonable Doubt, a legal procedural set to air on Hulu from executive producers Kerry Washington and Larry Wilmore. Duncan is also greenlit Phoebe Robinson comedy Everything's Trash at Freeform. And NBC has picked up Night Court, or the Night Court sequel, starring Melissa Rauch and original series star John Larroquette, two series. Yeah, sign me up for that. That's going to be funny. On the development front, the CW is teaming with J. Michael Straczynski to reboot Babylon 5 for a new generation, and Girlfriends creator Mara Brock Akil is updating Judy Blooms forever as part of her sprawling Netflix slate. To which I can only say, blubber or GTFO. <laughs> Meanwhile, Jesse... I would not have pegged you for a Judy Bloom fan. I, you know, I read all of my Beverly Cleary and Judy Bloom as, as a, a child. So anyway, and I definitely read forever back in the day. So uh, I just don't remember it as vividly as blubber. And <laughs> you also just probably wanted to say blubber. I totally times. Let's be honest. Blubber. It's the uh, show that taught me the word flenser and flensing. Hopefully seven listeners will find that relatable. <laughs> and the news <laughs> that we would normally get our resident expert Jackie Strauss to discuss, and maybe we will after he's done a little bit of the job, Jesse Palmer has been named as the new face of The Bachelor, replacing Chris Harrison, whose departure you might have heard a little bit about on this podcast, as host of the ABC Dating Game. Well, with headlines out of the way, let's dive into this week's top five. Number one. It has been a big week for reboots and spinoffs. Of course, if you're a regular listener, you know that every week is a big week for reboots and spinoffs and franchises, and things you thought were dead that come back to life. And as you did say, it's the spooky season, and this week's resurrection was a pretty big one. Talk to the kids a bit about a little show they might have heard of called Law & Order. Yeah, easily the biggest news of the week in terms of the reboot and revivals and all of that spinoff stuff it is NBC's announcement that Law & Order, the original series that birthed a thousand spinoffs and imitators, is returning for its 21st season. Some original cast members are expected to return. Um, it's, you know, look, this has been in the works for a few years. You know, it was on again, it was off again, it was on again. But it's Dick Wolf getting what he originally wanted that would have broken Gunsmoke's record as TV's longest-running primetime drama series. And then at the time, NBC abruptly canceled it before he could break the record. So what happened? Law & Order SVU broke it. And now Dick Wolf is going to have a chance to have not one show that broke that record, but two. So it's a passion project of his. We talked a little bit in, the, in headlines about 50 Cent and BMF, and this is kind of the same thing. He's, Dick Wolf has spoken for years about the thing that got away was, was the new season, the, the, the record-breaking season of the flagship Law & Order series, and it's coming back. And what's interesting to me is that it's coming back on NBC, specifically episodes I'm sure will air the next day on Peacock, but in an era where all these major companies are putting their best foot forward on their streaming platforms, I was a little bit surprised that, that it was going to be for the network. At the same time, Dick Wolf has tried for a long time to, you know, to, to get more and more spinoffs. So there was the Law and Order for the Defense spinoff that was slated to go this season that was scrapped because of creative issues. That, uh, I'm told that they couldn't figure out what the show was going to be, which is a weird thing to say about a show called For the Defense. Uh, cause it kind of sounds implied in that title. Anyway, and then there's Law and Order Hate Crimes, which you can go back and listen to our great interview that we did uh, last year with Warren Light, 
That would be episode 73 from June 2020, where he spoke about the stalled Law & Order hate crimes, which was originally picked up series for NBC. He's saying it's going to go to Peacock. NBC Universal still not commenting. So, yeah, there have been some struggles in in creating successful spinoffs of Law & Order. Obviously, it's had a bazillion that have been successful. But in recent years, obviously, they they did the Chris Maloney show last season. That's coming back for season two. But, you know, originally, Wolf was going to have a three-show Law & Order block after on Thursdays after the three-show Chicago block on Tuesdays. And then don't forget, he's got a three-show FBI block on CBS. So yeah, it's a, you know, everyone wants the same thing. Franchises, 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 and well-known IP, as I've said a bazillion times on this show too. I'm just going to say bazillion, like a bazillion, bazillion times this episode. And what I keep saying is everyone wants these franchises and, and IP is king. You know, it brings in, it's, it's cheaper market because it's got a, a built-in fan base and it, it's easier to cut through because you know what you're getting. And when Dick Wolf, you know, look, he's got he had not one but two nine figure overall deals that he signed with NBC Universal last year. The first was the big streaming deal that saw the Law and Order original series go to Peacock, which is part of the reason I'm surprised that the new series isn't going to be a Peacock exclusive because it would pair nicely and serve as a way to promote the library. And then the second deal was a renewal of his longtime overall deal with NBC Universal, and that included additional series orders for spinoffs. So here's this one obviously falls into that. So but in the larger sense, thematically, Dan, you know, Law and Order wasn't the only big reboot this week. Well, it certainly was the biggest. But elsewhere this week, Amazon's moving forward with its college set spinoff of The Boys and has hired former Agent Carter showrunners Michelle Fazekas and Tara Butters as the new showrunners. That's a spinoff of a show that is awaiting a premiere date for season three. So a quick spinoff of that one, obviously, is a surprise Emmy, you know, got a surprise Emmy nomination for Best Drama Series. Then you go over to Netflix and On My Block, which has been kind of this quiet little show that came out of nowhere, um, is actually, it's ending this month or in October with its fourth season and it's getting its own spinoff, a comedy series called Free Ridge, and that will feature an entirely new cast. So so here you've got a show that's ending after four seasons that's been a quiet juggernaut for Netflix and they're keeping the spinoff and they're keep going to explore a new group of friends in that same world, but you're doing it at a, at a more cost-effective price tag. So with this, all the cast got big pay raises ahead of season three. That's a big story that I broke a, a couple years ago on THR. You can read all about the salary increases that they got, but this is a way to keep what's been a solid performer for them around, but at a lower price point. And then elsewhere at Netflix, you know, they, they are also editing, uh, uh, prepping a family-friendly offshoot of The Witcher, which that show got a, a prequel spinoff after airing only one season. Then there's this, uh, this week at, at the whatever virtual event that they have, which I refuse to call it by its name, the, uh, they announced that the, that the Witcher is getting a second anime film in the works as part of the franchise. So they're, they basically said, okay, we know the Witcher, you know, it did performed really, really well right out of the gate. And now boom, we're going to turn this into a franchise. Not instantly. boom. And of course, the other thing that came up is, this week is MTV is bringing back its biggest scripted hit. And that's not saying much because MTV doesn't have a lot of scripted shows, but Teen Wolf with the original cast coming back for a movie. And then original creator Jeff Davis signed a big overall deal there. And he's going to bring a new series called Wolfpack to the cable network. So, yeah, there's just so much content. And, you know, as we talk about this stuff, Dan, what's interesting to me, and we talked a little bit about this on, on Twitter with some some other colleagues in the industry, Um but what's interesting is how soon some of these shows are getting spinoffs or being turned into franchises, you know, where you have a show like Bridgerton is a great example. 
after after season one, the show gets renewed for seasons two, three, and four, and then Shonda is going to write a, a prequel or or a spinoff. I can't remember the details, but look, I mean, what do you think of all of this stuff? I mean, to me, it's 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 interesting. Like, how soon after some of these shows are birthed that it's just okay? It worked in season one. We caught fire in season two. Let's do a spinoff. And a lot of these are streaming shows where we have no idea how well they're doing. Dun, dun. No, dun, dun. no down. No. <laughs> Um, I mean, the, the conversation that you mentioned that we were having on Twitter uh, tied in directly to Stranger Things, and it tied into the fact that Stranger Things hasn't spawned a spinoff. And one of the things I noted in that conversation was that they kind of tried with the Chicago set 11 episode and people made fun of that. And I'm sure that if people had come out of that episode going, that was awesome. I would love to see more about people with powers in other cities. For sure, they would have made that into the spinoff. It just people made fun of it. Um, yeah. And don't forget Netflix execs. That's also worth mentioning is Netflix execs this, this week did tease plans to turn Stranger Things into a franchise with with spinoff series. So, I mean, doing that at this point, you know, feels I don't know. It's it's hard to know. It just the the, the reality is that Stranger Things has taken a couple at this point now, long pauses, delays, whatever. And obviously, this most recent one was COVID-based to some very large degree. But, I, you know, I don't know if at this point a Stranger Things expanded universe is as exciting as it might have been three years ago. I, You know, when it was sort of Netflix's token, not token, but it was their, their poster boy for breakout non-star-studded shows. It was kind of the show that broke out as a word-of-mouth hit as opposed to a, oh my goodness, we got... Kevin Spacey, to star in a scripted show. <laughs> it was a Winona Ryder's in this, but really the show's not about Winona Ryder, and then suddenly people discovered it. So it was it was a different kind of thing, and I really definitely feel like that's the sh- sort of show that should have gotten something spin-off, franchisee, whatever, after season two, and then they would have had spin-offs, franchises to go in the couple years that different seasons have been missing entirely. So it's... Uh, right, but the reason yeah. that the, the seasons are, are missing from the years and that it's not on, on a, a traditional release pattern is because the Duffer Brothers take their time. And Netflix, as we've stated a, a hundred times, or a bazillion, doesn't care about keeping things on a traditional schedule. They they put these shows out when they're done and when they're ready. And the Duffers, kind of like Vince Gilligan, and I'm not comparing them you know, qualitatively, but I'm saying that they're the, the model of the showrunner where they focus on one show at a time. They are not looking to have, they're not looking to be Greg Berlanti's or Shonda's or Ryan Murphy's. You know what I mean? They want to focus on just one thing. So if we're going to talk about Stranger Things, you know, there's still all, all the rumors about, you know, the future of the show. Will it end after how many seasons? Because the Duffers have been open about, you know, uh, not about this, but not being a long running show. Nothing on Netflix really is, let's be honest. So, you know, the question for me is if the flagship is going to end and the Duffers are going to do spinoffs, I'm sure one's going to lead right into the other. And the other question, too, is that's an expensive cast. Similar to On My Block, if you want to do spinoffs, you can set it in the same location. You can set it in a different location. You can do it entirely new and and have and, and create a new cast filled with, you know, a brand new group of people that can be breakout stars for, for another generation coming onto the show. So, I mean, there's a lot of different, different angles to, to all of this, but it's just, I just struggle to know, like, 
or, or to really understand like how big some of these shows are. And it, you know, like, yes, Netflix teased some new ratings, you know, metrics this week. It's still like, it's still a lot of math at a time when, you know what, they have all of this data and I've heard this, said this rant before, but they can put out and say, you know, X many million people completed season one of Bridgerton in this many days, like, or accounts, you know, like, you know, obviously if I'm watching with my wife or whoever you're watching with, you know, 10 people in a room or whatever, you know I mean? Like that's, to me, there's, there's, the, the curiosity of how big these shows are, or if this is these platforms trying to turn this into something bigger. Obviously, Stranger Things cut through. You go to Target, there's like Stranger Things sweatpants on the shelves. You know what I mean? Like when you see something that, that gives birth to a line of merchandising, yeah, that's that's a franchise. That's something that get cut through. You know, but the boys, like, I get it. You know, like season one aired and had some had a bunch of fans and then got decent reviews. And then season two came out of the gate and Obviously, earned the Emmy nomination, got a lot more buzz going for it. And then this college that spinoff came in. It's changed showrunners, you know, so they had some trouble getting it off the ground and, and figuring out what the voice of the show is. But how big is the voice? I don't know. Do you? I, 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 I mean, I certainly don't know in any tangible way. I only know the level on which people seem to be discussing it. And so it's all... Right, but it, we're we're in a bubble, it, right? You know, like our Twitter feeds are not like you know Middle America's Twitter feed. You know, like we follow industry and and critics and all the other and and the TV community. So I'm curious if you know, like to me, I, I know a show is cut through when my friends bring it up who are not in the industry and they bring it up and they're like, oh, this I, I finally watched Ted Lasso last week. I'm like, oh, cool, yeah, it's a good show. You know, like that's my barometer. I can and I can usually tell through similar things, but also not just through general people tweeting about it, but the way that they're tweeting about it and and comparatively to the way I might expect them to tweet about it. And it, it, there's no answer. And so that that remains a thing that we never know. And and this is sort of it's I think it's reflective of a, of a different kind of approach. And you can look back to when NBC canceled the Law and Order mothership in the first place when it was at a moment at which the show's ratings were not high, but they weren't horrible, but it was an oldish audience. And so that's also going to be a show, by the way, oldish. oldish indeed. So, but it was a situation, it was one of those situations where the broadcast TV math at that exact moment was the shiny new thing that we can imagine that might be a bigger show is of more value to us than the old expensive thing where we know exactly what its ratings are going to be. And maybe they're not the highest, but they're steady. And so in retrospect, if you asked NBC if they would rather have had 11 seasons of Law & Order going steadily at the ratings it was doing versus the nonstop stream of largely failed shows with a couple exceptions that they got instead, of course, everyone at NBC would tell you, yeah, we really probably in retrospect would have rather had 11 seasons of Law & Order, but that's just not the way it works. I find it very funny when you begin with uh, the, the Dick Wolf and his desire to beat Gunsmoke because it kind of for no reason in particular makes me think of the scene in uh in the jerk where where the assassin is trying to take Naven out and he keeps shooting the cans of oil and Naven starts screaming that he hates the cans. Um 
that I, I feel as if the, the Dick Wolf is somewhere sitting in his lair and he has this in his picture bunker, yeah. in his bunker <laughs> and he has target practice that he does on posters of Gunsmoke and all he wants to do is have as many shows as possible beat Gunsmoke. And so in your face Gunsmoke, which means, by the way, that it's totally time to uh, reboot Gunsmoke um, and... and <laughs> I'm but, just, but would that count as a season uh, twenty? And I don't know. <laughs> would I, that break its own record? No. And people on and people on Twitter have already been skeptical. I've seen people on Twitter skeptical about why this gets to be season twenty one of Law and Order. I mean, has enough time passed? What is the point at which the clock resets? You know, it's sort of one of those things like, like you can delay your, you can put your Twitter feed on hold for I believe six months or a year or something. But if you go any longer, they delete it. And so <laughs> at at some point does this simply become season one of law and order 2.0 and that's not for me to know and i don't want to earn well i mean it will have original cast there will be original cast members in it you know none of those deals are done yet i hear but i mean i don't know like is rebooted with the, the original cast i don't know is it it's it's Fuller Law and Order, like Fuller House, and yeah, so, so Fuller House yeah. was never considered be, to be you know season whatever of Full House. On the other hand, Will and Grace was considered to be season twelve, thirteen, whatever it was. Yeah, um, Roseanne was Roseanne until Roseanne did Roseanne things. It's true, nope, and it, it became the Connors. Yeah, and again, this this all comes down to one of our favorite conversational topics: semantics. So, <laughs> anyway. yeah, well, en- enough on that. So, um, yeah. More reboots and spinoffs and revivals. It the the it's just not going to end anytime soon. Especially you know until all of these streamers really kind of figure out who they are. Yes, they've all launched and they're all having their own versions of growing pains. There was an executive, Jason Kalar, uh, from Warner Media, who said that who confessed that that HBO Max kind of screwed up the launch. You know, I'm sure Peacock event execs at some point will come out and say something similar. I mean, obviously, uh, those were both, you know, hampered by the pandemic and challenges of getting content um, when it was when it, for launch, like the Friends reunion, et cetera. But once these are up and running for a number of years, they're going to start to develop their their specific brand. And it's kind of like what you're seeing w- with Apple, you know, like they don't look they're, they they're a different animal because they have the obviously you know, so much of, um, you can buy content from other platforms on it. Like here, buy, you know, watch the new season of billions on Showtime for $2 an episode or whatever it is. But then when you look at their TV plus slate of originals, it's like, they're really curating a good group of originals. I mean, so much stuff of that has, has cut through. So you're starting to see their brand emerge. And I think once my, to get to my point a little faster, once they get once Peacock and HBO Max and all these other recently launched streamers start to really understand what their personality is, then you'll say, okay, well, we've got this vault. This would work well here. Like Sex and the City's coming back. Pretty Little Liars is coming back. Like, do those both make sense as HBO Max originals? What is HBO Max? So I think they'll continue to figure all that stuff out. And of course, Gossip Girl, et cetera. So, but I digress. Number two. Up second, we're breaking our format a little bit this week for a second interview. CBS's United States of Al tells the story of an Afghani interpreter who moves to Columbus, Ohio to live with his Marine friend and colleague. Generally on the show, comic misadventures ensue. But in the aftermath of the American military exit from Afghanistan, United States of Al decided to rewrite the second season premiere for an emotional episode that deviates wildly from the show's normal tone. Joining us to discuss the episode and its serious approach are writer-producers Reza Aslan and Maya Tuzi. Thank you for joining us. Oh, it's our pleasure. Thanks for having us. Thank you for having us. 
First off, for the listeners who are not sitting looking at you on a little video screen right now, if you guys would both introduce yourself so that they will know who's talking. This is Reza Aslan. And this is Mahia Tusi. Excellent. So, first of all, talk us through the timeline of where you guys were in the writing-producing process of the second season of United States of Al when the exit from Afghanistan occurred, and then the conversations that took place about how and if the show needed to address slash respond to it. So in when um, Biden announced we were in the middle of, when Biden announced that he was going along with the with President Trump's Taliban deal, um, we were in the middle of season one. And from that moment on, we were both surprised. We were all surprised, really, and, and knew that in this second season, we're going to be dealing with an event of some sort that would directly impact the show and the characters of the show. We assumed something along the lines of a slow deterioration of. Well, there was there was conflicting opinions about the the the, the, the speed at which this might happen, uh, but it, none of us thought it would be as fast as it did, and and so we were shooting episodes that anticipated something that was coming, um, and and uh, we'd done one, we were about to shoot a second one. Uh, and that's when these couple of anti-Taliban strongholds in Afghanistan fell to the Taliban. At that point, it was like, okay, so this is a lot more imminent. And then the question was, what was Kabul going to look like? And we, you know, and I remember it was a Thursday and we all talked on the phone and we said, okay, Monday morning, let's meet and talk. And Monday morning, when we all met here on the lot, um, Kabul had fallen, the president had, had escaped and... Um, and, you know, we were these images, uh, horrific images were coming through and like the rest of the world were watching it at the same time. The difference for us was that at the same time, you know, we have 10 Afghan colleagues between cast and, and writers and staff. And we had four Afghan actors who were on set that week rehearsing to shoot an episode. And then we have, you know, we have uh, five Afghan colleagues that were here with us in the room. Um, and so nobody on this entire team got to experience those events without being in direct proximity to people who were directly impacted by it, who were trying to save their families and who were so distraught and panicked by the loss, by, you know, by not knowing what would happen, etc. So... I think that was what was very unique about it. And and we tried to, um, first we met and we said, all right, how do we do this? And and we, you know, we knew that we had to take this into the larger room and we went into the room and we spoke with everyone, really priority being mental health for our Afghan colleagues and how we can support you. And we were surprised when they essentially were very unanimous and quick in saying, look, we need to take this on. We got to tell the story and we have a responsibility to do so. And, and so we said, all right, but easier said than done, because how do you do it? Right. How do you do it? Um, given the fact that we're on a comedy block on a Thursday night on CBS, um, you know, and, uh, and that, and that how took a bit of time to figure out because, um, you know, soon we found ourselves running a rescue operation, uh, you know, here, like thousands of others of military veterans and Afghans and Afghan-Americans across the country who had created this human chain to make up for the 
disorganizations and the chaos that was happening on the ground. Um, our veterans on staff, our military advisor and writer, and our, you know, started working with the Afghans to try to figure out how we get our own people, the people we had direct connection to, out of the out of the country. And by the middle of the week, we had our first attempt, failed attempt at getting someone across that wall. And by then, it became pretty obvious that we were running, you know, we were writing about the same thing that was happening. And once we figured out, we weren't writing the story of what happened there, because that was really difficult to figure out how to do. And we were just going to tell the story that was happening here with us. Um, then we had a path forward and we just didn't know how it would end because we didn't know what was happening. And it took, you know, uh, and then it was a crazy couple of weeks, <laughs> as you can imagine. It was madness, un unlike anything we'd ever experienced, none of us. And what, what, how was the cast reaction? Like, you know, considering what the subject matter is, obviously, when everyone came in and, you know, and you said, this is what we're going to do. I mean, I'm, I'm guessing you had the cast coming to you going, what are we doing? So how, how did that involvement look like? I think the cast has always understood that this is a unique show, that it's a show that comes with a certain set of responsibilities about how we tell the story of not just what's happening in Afghanistan, what's happened over the last 20 years, but also the, the way that that war has left a deep impact on uh, American military veterans and on Afghans, both still in Afghanistan and those who have come here to the United States. And veteran families. And veteran families. And so I think that they all showed up on Monday fully expecting that we were going to we were going to address this. You know, I don't think that there was any question um, from them that we were going to dive headfirst into this issue. But I think even they were surprised by um, the decision that was made just amongst the EPs and the writers and then eventually with the studio and the network to set the premiere episode um, during the fall of Kabul and to remove all the jokes and the laugh track and to create a 30 minute episode of, of television that I think no one has ever experienced before. And once they saw the scope in this format in that time slot, right. you know what I mean? Once they saw the scope and the scale of what we wanted to do, uh, the enthusiasm and the dedication was overwhelming. Look, the, 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 you know, everyone knew pretty quickly that we were going to do this because, you know, because we were let, you know, once the Afghans, our Afghan colleagues were like, look, we got to do it. We said, all right, we'll take care of our mental health and we, we make sure that we focus on getting these families out, but we'll try to figure this out together. Uh, but, you know, everyone from network, from studio um, to the actors was waiting to see how, like the how was the question, right? And uh, so I think when we sent our script in, um, it was right before the end, the deadline, uh, but right before the 31st, I think the deadline, it was a day before the deadline ended and we pulled out, we turned the script in. And then once the network and studios saw what we were doing, they were 100% behind them. That was surprising, to be honest with you, because as you well know, a normal show doesn't survive this kind of a thing. You know, you have a sitcom, you have a comedy, this kind of thing happens and people run the other way. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think, 
you know, Reza talked about this really beautifully, is that we built in the DNA of this show a team and an idea uh, that allowed us to survive. Like we have a set of expertise that, you know, we have veterans and Afghans in the room with us and on staff and in the cast. And, and, um, and the show was always about the impact of this conflict on these people um, and how that plays out. And because we had that, we could find our way through those very difficult two weeks where none of us knew what was going to happen and how the story was going to come together. Um, but, you know, such a, and then honestly, the support once we showed network and studio, like here it is. And once they read it, like from everyone, from the top, we got messages from everyone saying that they, you know, people were reading the script that we didn't know ever read scripts, you know, <laughs> and, and, and came back to us with really, really heartfelt, so meaningful, you know, to get that and, and to know that we have that kind of support. It's really, really not an experience that Reza and I have had the last 15 years of doing this work in this town to have that level of support from from network and studio and from chalk and and without that support we wouldn't be here. Um, but it was amazing, really. Chuck Lorre did have some experience doing these serious no studio audience episodes on Mom, and so there was some framework for it. Uh, talk a bit about the experience of the shooting of the episode and sort of what it felt like as opposed to a normal shooting week. I mean, even just beginning with the table read that we did um, on the Friday before we started shooting, it was one of the most emotional experiences I've ever had. I mean, we had sort of the cast and the crew and the producers, some of the writers were there. Um, and for many of them, this is the first time that, they, that they'd heard the script uh, being read. And I mean, we were we had already experienced a couple of weeks that were just such an emotional roller coaster. You know, coming into the writers' room on the Monday after the fall of Kabul and seeing um, our Afghan writers, our vet writers, just um, you know dissolve into a pool of tears. You know, that that whole day was just mostly just hugging and crying. We didn't really get whole much week. done. A whole week, a whole two weeks. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But then I think to begin the process of actually filming this thing and knowing that there wasn't going to be a laugh track, knowing that, you know, we weren't going to be telling jokes, it allowed us to actually flex some unique muscles. You know, we, we talk about this a lot. We treated the shoot like we were making a film, you know, instead of a, a, a sitcom and multicam sitcom, we were able to take our time. You know, normally we shoot these episodes in three days. We, with this time we had about, we had five days to shoot it. Um, we had the ability to really, um, use some different kinds of takes, different camera angles. Um, and you can see it in the final product. It really does come off as, um, it's got a very filmic quality to it. And that allows, I think the emotions to land in a way that, that perhaps they wouldn't, if we had used some of the usual multicam tropes. And we didn't have a live audience to begin with, you know, because of COVID. And so, which was very helpful as you find your sea legs in the first season. Um, and obviously it allowed for the space that we needed in order to do this right um, on, on, on set here. Now, to be clear, you guys have talked about removing the, the, 
laugh lines, et cetera, the punchlines. But there are punchlines in this episode. You know, there there are still the occasional gag. Just they're not kind of edited in the rhythm that a traditional multicam sitcom would have. As you were refining this, what were the conversations like about can we make a joke in this situation because we think it's something a character might make or something like that? Look, as we were finding our way through it and, you know, we were wondering, you know, can we do this without writing jokes? Can we can we remove the laugh track, you know, and 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 look, genuinely, like, can you how do you bend this format? And really, it was Chuck who was like, hey, you know, let's let's not do a laugh track and don't write to the, don't write to jokes. Um, and, uh, you know, and so once we were, you know, once once we had once Chuck said that, I think for us, it was came like, OK, like we're not trying to. You know, once we had Chuck's backing and Chuck Chuck's expertise to say, look, you could do it this way, then it allowed us for us to just write a very emotional episode and allow the humor to come through in a way that it does in life, where sometimes you're all in a traumatic situation and you someone will say something, then people, you know, we've all had those moments. And and um, and I think that's the humor is different, even though yet there are some jokes in there. The humor is different. Um and uh, it's a lot more grounded and it's not the same kind of thing that you'd normally see. But for sure, yeah, it's still there. And it was necessary because say, it's a very difficult episode to watch. Otherwise. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I would say that the we used humor in this episode to relieve certain moments of tension. You know, there are cer- certain moments in which, like Mahi had said, we've all been in these situations, situations in which, you know, you're you're with someone, you're either mourning or or you're anxious and someone can kind of break through that tension a little bit with a, a bit of humor and it allows everyone to kind of exhale. And this is an emotional episode. I've watched it five times and I'm a, a mess each time. And so it was important for us not just to give the audience that emotional journey, but to allow them to exhale every once in a while, you know, to give them a chance to just kind of <sighs> breathe out, you know, laugh a little bit, break that tension a little bit before we then ramp it up one more time. And and that's and, and my head is right. It, it's all about the rhythm is different um, when it comes to the humorous moments in this episode than you find in a traditional sitcom. Well, having had the experience of working on this episode and seeing kind of how far you could stretch the show tonally within the basic premise, how did that impact the episode that you wrote the week after, the week after that, the week after that, knowing that you could actually do an episode like this? And that was, there was a, you know, there's been a lot of conversation around what does this mean and, and what is, what are the opportunities that, that it presents? And I think, Ultimately, what people will see is that, you know, the DNA of the show from season one works. It was it made sense because the idea is that these are, you know, it's a sitcom, right? It's a group of people who are uniquely funny. <laughs> um, we all know those kinds of people. It's just sitcoms are a collection of those people, right? And 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 they are affected all of them were affected last year you know by this conflict they were brought together by this very conflict and the manner of its ending the downfall from that the refugees who are coming all the new refugees that are coming 
it's going to impact all of them. You know, there's a there was always a mental health theme to this season. You know, Riley's in in therapy and 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 really sort of struggling to come to terms with his PTSD and his service, and all of that was also all part of the DNA of this season. And now, and we're just going to keep sort of digging into that. I think what this allows for very organically for all of us is is you know our our sandbox is bigger our you know the tools that we can use are bigger now we know that we can do it and and the audience expectations are that we can hit those more dark serious emotional tones and that we have to and i think really you know this is a conversation that has been had in this industry for a long time by a lot of different people and with us it's just like where is the future of sitcom and you know where is this this very clear form that's been you know, this is what, what we grew up on. You know, Reza always talks about this being the way he learned English and he's learned it well <laughs> uh, because of sitcoms. And, and, uh, um, and, you know, I was just watching Three's Company, which I didn't really learn much English from. Uh, but, uh, but uh, you know, where, where does it go? And I guess accidentally, miraculously, tragically, something has landed on this team and the formulation of this team and all of us that perhaps is a path forward for a way we entangle with really deep, deep, serious things that are going on in all our lives through this medium that is so close to all of us and how we sort of, you know, yeah. what we're used to. I mean, I would say the network sitcom is the most democratizing genre uh, of television, you know, it's it's the one that most everyone has some experience with, and so it also then becomes the most powerful uh, form of pop culture because it, it can it has the the currency to reach the largest group of people, and so we can think of more we we can think of very uh, few ways to create the greatest impact, you know, when it comes to changing the way that people think than the sitcom. And so we take the responsibility of the show very seriously. And we know that, you know, for instance, that this will be the only Afghan character that most Americans will ever see or know, you know, the only Muslim protagonist that's on network television. And so how we treat and how we um, create these stories are going to have a much larger impact on the way that Americans understand um, the stories of Afghans and Muslims in the United States than, um, you know, if we were making some cable show for that. I'm curious about this. You've talked about the the Afghan writers in the room and and all of that, but but you guys are both um, Iranian, right? But in terms of background, what are your own blind spots when it comes to depicting Afghan culture? Because obviously, you know, we we don't want to look at any of these countries as being monolithic in any way, shape, or form. And so I assume that it's one thing to say, okay, let's have people who know things about Middle Eastern or Central Asian culture. It's one thing to say, let's have someone who knows, you know, things about Muslim culture. But it's still, they're all different. And so where where do you guys have to ask questions? I think it's even more so with Afghanistan, right? I think Afghanistan is uniquely, I mean, it's also true of Iran and, and other countries in the region, but Afghanistan is uniquely not a monolith, right? The experience of being Afghan is vastly different if you are 
depending on what tribe you come from and whether you know and who's in power and, and your relationship with the power and you know so so we are keenly aware of not only our our blind spots but our blind spots as a team despite the fact that we have so many afghans and afghan americans on our team because we all know very clearly that we also ha- we constantly have to check ourselves and says all right yes but you know and al you know is is uh is from has a specific background uh is from a very specific geography far more there's far more we'd laugh about this all the time like our research and like the bible of for a sitcom in our show is a lot more like this is not you know you don't have that level of detail in any kind of a show like this but we have to really really think about all right who is he and then what is his background and what is his level of privilege in terms of his economics and his access etc and what does it what does it mean to work with americans and 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 then what does this every situation mean to other people and so we are i think i think we are uniquely as Reza and i have been around for a long time trying to tell these kinds of stories in various different forms so blind spots is uh is what we're telling everyone about constantly right you know and how do you address those blind spots and i think for us and thank god in in dave and maria our showrunners we have incredible partners who knew that we cannot make this show without really really putting people not just on the afghan side but also on the veteran side people on staff uh and surround themselves uh with the types of life experiences and also form and mastery of 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 this of this form in order to sort of create the right mixture of expertise so that we can tell the story appropriately and and I was saying earlier I don't think we would be here having this conversation with you if that it's not something we hadn't done you know that we have a show still that we have this episode that's going to come out in a week from now on a Thursday night on a network primetime you know at an 8:30 slot you know which we grew up with knowing in a very specific way you know as two brown kids immigrants in America um is a testament to the fact that we were all of us not just us as two Iranian American immigrants but Dave Maria Chuck network studio was keenly aware and was willing to do to bend in all the ways that was necessary in order for us to have the right team so that we can do the right right thing at the right time you know And just as a last question, Reza, last year you were very outspoken when the initial trailer came out and and people responded in some cases negative and negatively and started pointing to stereotypes or started reading stereotypes into it. You you got into a couple heated discussions with people on Twitter and whatnot. Um, and we are here talking about the second season of a show. So I'm curious if you have a pitch for an audience that only watched the trailers or who only watched the pilot and then didn't come back about what the show is that you're making now versus what the show was that you were making at the start, what people's perceptions are of the show. First thing that's important to understand is that this is the show that we always were making. We have not made some sort of sudden 180 turn uh, in our second season. If you go back and watch you know, the first season, you will see that we were having these incredibly uncomfortable conversations about the war in Afghanistan, about the toll that it has caused um to both Afghans and the American military veterans um who are still struggling you know with um that conflict the argument that i was making at the beginning of the first season is give the show a chance you know uh 
We have the first Muslim protagonist on network television. We have the first show to have ever told the story of Afghans or Afghan Americans. We have the first writer's room ever to have this kind of incredible collection of Afghan writers, American vets, many of whom this is their very first writer's room experience ever. Veteran families. And yeah. we, are, we are allowing them to tell their own stories in a way that has never been told before. And so we understand why certain people, those who look just like us, uh, are immediately turned off when Hollywood tries to tell our stories because they haven't done a very good job of it. And the argument that we have been making throughout the first season and that we will continue to make is that we have an opportunity now to tell our story ourselves. And that's not an opportunity that we have gotten before. So I think that what's important for people to understand is that this is what we have always planned on for this show, that it would be a show that deals unflinchingly with the reality of the war and its aftermath in Afghanistan and the massive toll that it has taken on individuals whose stories we now have the room to tell. You know. And still be funny and still be a sitcom. Yeah. Um, I think that's the key thing. I mean, I, look, I think we as Muslims um, and in America, we've gone through, I would say, four phases, right? There was the initial phase that lasted a number of decades, which was sort of the the exotic Muslim, oftentimes played by white, white dudes, right? Mm -hmm. So uh, when they were like hot, sort of sexy, um, you know, you know, Arabian Nights uh, sort of Muslims or caricatures, right? And, uh, you know, and then there was the post, you know, you know, the, the, the experience that really changed the narrative was the experience that is of our lives, right? We were, we were immigrants in America because of the, um, because of the Iran hostage crisis, right? And, and sort of the revolution and the hostage crisis and, and the hostage crisis really changed, you know, it wasn't 9-11, it was a hostage crisis that really changed it. And for a long time, um, the narrative shifted and suddenly Muslims became the bad guys and the terrorists. Mm -hmm. And then you had 9-11 and the war on terror that took it to a whole other level. And uh, and so the media, so slowly now you're beginning to see sort of a shift back to different kinds. But, you know, like the, a recent study by USC and, and, and Pillars Fund, that uh, that Riz Ahmed, you know, our dear friend and amazing Riz Ahmed, is sort of been talking about constantly. Is that what is it? They they looked at 200 films, recent films. 1.6 percent were you know featured Muslim characters, 70 percent of which were either perpetrators or victims of violence. And right, and so we the reason why this is the third time we're going at it with a sitcom, um, uh, Reza and I, and the reason why we sort of were so important for us to sort of get a sitcom on air was so that you can put a, a Muslim protagonist that was just a guy who was very specific, you know, with his own very specific characteristics, who was well-researched, who didn't have to address. But for so many people whose experience of Muslims on television and media is this 80 years of bizarre sort of caricatures that doesn't reflect their lives and experiences, they want that 
person. They want that everything to be addressed by that one character. And no, no single character can obviously do that. And, and, and that's is like, and we are very much in that fourth phase of just creating characters that can just be themselves and really making sure that those who are breathing life into those characters, the writers, the creative teams, that those people can really adequately represent them. And one of the things that I think irked both of us last year was that in their criticism, they were erasing us, yeah. right? It was Chuck Lorre, right? It was like, that's an easy target. So Chuck Lorre, and as if we didn't exist. And so what the argument we were making is that if representation matters, then here we are representing full stop. Now, if your argument is representation matters only when your politics agree with me and when you do what I want, then as artists, we, we respectfully disagree and tell you, you know what? You want to tell a different story, go out there and do it. Tell it. But representation matters, period. And we're here representing, and you cannot erase the Afghans who are behind this project and the veterans who are behind this project. Yes, we agree representation matters, and this is what it looks like. And there it is. Well, thank you guys so much for, for talking to us today on the podcast about the show. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you, Daniel. The second season of United States of Al premieres October 7th on CBS. Number three. Up third, NBC has solidified the cast of Saturday Night Live ahead of its return October 2nd. This week, news broke that Kate McKinnon, Cicely Strong, Keenan Thompson, A.D. Bryant, and Pete Davidson have all closed new deals to return for season 47 after a summer of speculation, considering all of their deals were expired and they were in talks to either come back or figuring out what was next. Meanwhile, Beck Bennett has opted to exit following an eight-season run as a featured player, Lauren Holt, is also not returning. On the flip side, the series has also added three new faces for the new season. You can find that info on THR.com. But Dan, considering all the speculation about Cecily Strong and, and everyone basically thought that the, her last sketch from season 46 really did feel like she was saying her farewell to the show. Are you happy to see so much of the, of the core cast returning? What do you think of Be Beck Bennett's exit? And yeah, are you excited for the new season? Because, you know, it's, it's definitely a big pop culture show. It is always a big pop culture show, and whether or not it deserves all of its Emmys or not, it is still a show that I watch every weekend. It's a, it's a thing I do. Uh, Same, without fail. I, I think that it points to what Saturday Night Live is these days and how the media landscape changing around it has changed what the show is. And I'm, I'm sure we've discussed this on the podcast, and I'm sure I've discussed it, and I'll, I'll do it again, is that the show for a long time, kind of had these two modes of how it existed. It, on one side, it was kind of the it was kind of the minor leagues. It was kind of a we're going to build up a couple stars and then they're going to go off and they're going to make movies and they're going to make TV shows and they're going to be the next big stars in the world. And then there was also the mode of we're going to make stars on the show and then we're going to turn their materials into movies and whatnot. And and that was a thing. And it's been a while since that's been a, a steady thing that the show has has done. You know, somehow we, you know, we got a MacGruber movie, but there have been countless. There's a MacGruber TV show coming, a Peacock. And with Lorne Michaels attached as producer on all of them. So sometimes that model does still work. And often Lorne Michaels will serve as producers on various people's shows like, like Keenan. But. I think what you're seeing and what you see when you see this gigantic cast at this point, I think 21 people 
which is r- ridiculous. And it's and it's too much, but it's too much within the confines of a TV landscape in which you know that at any given point, a third of the people in the cast are going to be working on other things. And this wasn't a thing that either A, was possible necessarily for them back in the day, or B, a thing that Lorne Michaels necessarily encouraged back in the day. But now, because of the business, you can have A.D. Bryant making shrill. You can have Kate McKinnon doing whatever Kate McKinnon wants to do. You can have Cecily. Yeah. yeah, she's doing Peacock's Tiger King scripted show. You can have Cecily Strong making Schmigadoon, etc. So it's become... Rather than being a place where you start and you go off to do other things, it's become kind of a home base. It's become a place you can return to. And as a result, that means that you have a lot of these people who have been on the show bordering on forever in a way that back in the day you simply did not see people do. You know, the big stars on SNL would be gone after four or five years because they'd go off to do other things. And then a couple of them would stick around for seven or eight years. And then, you know, if someone stuck around longer than that, you'd go, man, it's because they don't have anything else to do. And it, it seemed like something that was a little bit pathetic. And it doesn't seem pathetic that, that Keenan Thompson's been on the show forever. And it doesn't seem pathetic that lots of these people have been. But in a different age, Kate McKinnon would have left Saturday Night Live three years ago, and that's not what the show does anymore. What that means, yeah, and that's because yeah. of a flexibility that Lauren Michaels has said. You know, look, this is a great cast. We value you here. We don't want you to leave, but I understand that you want to pursue other projects. But the the schedule for SNL, obviously, you know, live on Saturdays, but there's a certain amount of rehearsal during the week. But there's an off season. And A.D. Bryant filmed an entire TV show every offseason in Shrill, right? You know, and, you know, Keenan, there were certain episodes like you watched last season, certain episodes that Cecily Strong wasn't around or certain episodes Kate wasn't around, et cetera. And that's because they were doing these other projects and some of which, yes, are produced by Lauren and some of them aren't, like the Tiger King show, for example. And that's how SNL is pivoting to help keep their stars in-house. But also he's saying like, yeah, yeah, you're you want to do more stuff? Great. How can I help? Great. I'll executive produce. Let's help get the show on the air. And we'll work with you on that capacity and we'll work together on the scheduling. It's, it's, it, he's basically created, you know, in, in his production company, Broadway Video, he is, is effectively created a mini studio of his own and have a way to keep talent happy. I mean, these guys, it's like, you know, look, we used to write these stories about actors in the Arrowverse signing, you know, talent deals with the studio, but it was basically a talent deal to, to be in the DC TV verse. Right. And this is kind of the same thing. And it sometimes means that the show does seem to have too many people. And it does seem like it doesn't always use people as much as their talent necessarily, you know, says that they should be being used. So you get someone like I would I would use Melissa Villasenor as the kind of example of someone who when they use her, she is incredibly talented. And I think you can always see that. But on the other hand, they often don't really use her. You rarely walk away from an episode going, man, she starred in five epi- in five uh, sketches this episode. And so, you know, sometimes people don't get used enough. Sometimes people have to make the most of very, very little screen time. Like, I feel as if probably, I don't know if there's ever been a Saturday Night Live um, cast member who has gotten as much out of as little as Bowen Yang. I, I think he is someone who, in any given week, like Melissa Villasenor, you never walk away going, man, he was in five sketches this week. This was the Bowen Yang show, except that you often walk away and the one sketch you're talking about is his two-minute appearance on uh, Weekend Update. Weekend Update, yeah. And and so that's kind of a unique thing that you that 
you still can have breakouts. He counts as a breakout. I think that Chloe. Yeah, and he also has another show too. He's is he's in the Aquafina show for Comedy Central. Yeah, he, well, he's he's all over the place. He he pops yeah. up constantly. He's he's working steadily around this. So and also he's going to be a regular cast member now. I believe Chloe Feynman was also bumped up to regular cast status, and she's and she's broken out somewhat as well. I, I you know whether. Whether she's broken out at the expense of Melissa Villasenor or maybe at the expense of Heidi Gardner or something else. But you just you need this big rotating cast for the version of the show that it is now. Now, will the show miss Beck Bennett? I, I think it'll miss him some. It's it's not one of those crippling situations where, oh, my God, how are they going to be able to fill the space he occupied? I don't think that's I don't think that's the case to any degree. But. The show will miss him here and there because he he was very gifted at doing difficult things. He was diff- he was very good at being a straight man when that was what was being required. But he also did do not exactly impersonations. I wouldn't say his Vladimir Putin is an impersonation of Vladimir Putin. I wouldn't say his Mike Pence was an impersonation of Vladimir Putin. But he he did character work within the realm of famous people successfully. So I, I think he'll I think he'll be missed, but I think that his capacity is one that can be filled. I think if you look at the cast members who they've added, you know, I think people spent a few minutes obviously sort of looking up people and seeing who they were. And uh, Aristotle Lothari, who's one of the new cast members, I, I think he has a, a very interesting background. And if you go back, there was a, a video about how he had somewhat put his comedy career on hold to uh, to um, help his mom who who was dealing with health problems. And it was, it was very sweet and very funny. And that was good. I think that Sarah Sherman, she's got a lot of content out there and she has a a really wacky sense of humor and it's going to be it is going to very much depend on how much they can open the door to it because her sense of humor feels to me a little bit like kind of an early Fred Armisen sense of humor where it could either be brilliant or it could grind the show to the, to a halt if they use her or they could be completely unable to use her at all and she could go back to her regular life. So I'm I'm curious and I'm you know I'm I'm curious as to how they're going to use people always the initial round of hosts um, it, I would say it is is mixed. The uh, first episode back this Saturday is is Owen Wilson, and I I assume he will be fine. I I see no reason why Owen Wilson can't be a good Saturday Night Live host. I don't necessarily feel the same way about uh, Kim Kardashian West, uh, who is hosting the week after that. On the other hand, that's one of those things where you you just never know when people like. Kim Kardashian are going to turn out to be really good sports and funny or when they're going to be excruciating. And then you have, yeah. uh, listen, I'm, I'm just going to jump right to it. October 20, 23rd, Jason Sudeikis and my favorite Brandy Carlisle sign me up. And that's, that's one of those where it's, it's just easy because the, when, when the returning cast members come back, you, you know what they're going to be able to do. Uh, you, what's up with that, right? You know, there's going to be a what's up with that sketch and that will be funny. And, and he's just good. And, uh, and I know you like Brandy Carlisle. Uh, so, so yeah, I, none, like, I wouldn't say that of these four hosts, the other one that we didn't mention is Rami Malik, who I guess will be probably creepy. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but sometimes he can be amusingly creepy. It's it's a thing that he possesses the yeah, capacity and mus- to do. With musical guest Young Thug. Yeah. Yes, and Halsey would be the Halsey and Casey Musgrave, other two. I, I don't know that any of these people are are for me 
sort of the appointment television guest hosts, but I will still watch every one of these on Saturday Night Live, so it doesn't matter. And yeah, so we'll we'll see. It's uh you know, it's it's not a it's not an election year yet, so so that should at least change the tone up front, and that's always yeah, and, a, and, a and it's thing. not you know everyone's vaccinated, they're back in the studio, there's a live audience, yeah. So it'll be. It, I'm very much excited, looking forward to the new season. So up next, it's time for our showrunner spotlight segment. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Number four. Our guest this week is Lori Nunn, creator of Netflix's Sex Education. The hour-long comedy about high schoolers in a rural and fictional corner of England was Nunn's first show as series creator, and the third season premiered two weeks ago and was promptly renewed by Netflix for a fourth season this week. And fair warning, since the show did premiere two weeks ago, we are going to talk about spoilers from the finale. Welcome to the podcast, Lori. It's nice to be here. First off, congratulations on the season four renewal. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, it's it's been so nice to to see that it's been renewed. Well, sometimes Netflix makes shows wait for months for that formal pickup, but this came basically a week after the third season launched. How gratifying was it to get the renewal that quickly? And what do you make of of the speed of the pickup? Yeah, and I had heard that the show was renewed well before it even premiered. Um, yeah, so we, we basically found out, um, that we had been renewed, um, a, a few weeks before series three launched and, uh, yeah, it was just, it was just really lovely because I think in the past it's, it's been the normal, you know, the show sort of lands on the platform and then we wait a month and see what the viewing figures are and have that phone call. So it was just, uh, yeah, really lovely to know that the work that I've already started doing on Series 4 is, is definitely going to go somewhere. <laughs> I, I love hearing that you're already working on Season 4 because, yeah, after that cliffhanger, I definitely need, need more. Um, but you did mention, um, you know, the viewership. So Netflix this week did release some slightly less vague data points, but you know, in in those phone calls that, that you have with, with the executives, what do they tell you in terms of the show's performance? And have you asked for any kind of metrics? They usually keep it quite vague. Um, it's very much, you know, like they, they they sort of tell us like what countries we're, we're doing particularly well in. And, um, you know, we get a little bit of um, information about how many people have like watched it all the way through to the end. But it's, yeah, it's pretty vague in terms of the figures. They, they like to keep it very mysterious. 
Yeah, they do that with press as well. But you mentioned that they give you completion rate. Do you have any, you know, do you remember any numbers that they've given you for previous seasons or anything that they've said more recently about season three and how it, it, it what kind of completion rate that's at? I, well, I haven't had any phone calls about um, series three yet. And um, uh, I'm, to be honest, I'm not the right person to ask about numbers because I'm, I'm a, I'm a writer who does not, does not excel at maths. So I don't, it doesn't stick in my brain. <laughs> you know, the, the show has broken through, you know, in terms of the countries and where it performs, you know, you've gotten multiple BAFTA uh, recognitions, but it, it really has yet to earn the same acclaim here, despite Netflix touting its viewership and, you know, and being one of the, the top originals for, for the service. But why do you think that that, you know, awards branches here in the U.S. haven't taken notice to what's clearly a crossover hit? Well, that's an, that's an interesting question. I, I guess from my perspective, I wouldn't, you know, I, I don't really, when the show started, I wasn't even expecting anyone to watch it, let alone for, you know, people to enjoy it and for it to have um, continued into multiple series. Um, and yeah, I'm, 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 I'm just really happy that, that people are enjoying it and kind of engaging with the characters. I think that we're quite a, we're quite a unique show where, you know, we're a teen show. We're a very queer show. It's, you know, a show about teenagers, but I think anyone from any generation can enjoy it. And we've got great adult characters as well. And I, yeah, we're, we're comedy drama. We sort of sit somewhere in between. I think we're just doing our own thing. Now, looking ahead with the renewal to season four, I think it might be hard for a lot of Americans to necessarily have a clear sense of how much longer these Moordale secondary students still have in school. But as you're looking at a fourth season, are you looking at the fourth season as as a final season, as a transitional season with some of the cast, et cetera, or just business as usual, keep telling the story until they tell us to stop? I I tend to like to look at each season as I just want to give it my all and and any good ideas that I have, try and put them all in and and sort of see where we end up at the end of it. Um, I'm definitely not viewing it as a final um, season. And if they want to keep making the show, I love writing the characters and I'd love to see, you know, how, how they sort of like continue to grow um, together. So, yeah, I'm not saying it's the end, but then it might also be the end. You never know. <laughs> yeah. But that that said, do you have like a long term plan. I mean, I know, you, you know, a lot of writers, like, and it sounds like you're, you're, you fall into this category, like to back themselves into the corner and just worry, you know, and not have to worry about cliffhangers and just, oh, we'll figure it out. But, you know, with Netflix, a lot of their shows, you know, tend to be, you know, there was, there was one recently, uh, a big international show from the founder creators hit and hit and run that Netflix executive said, go ahead and do a cliffhanger. And then it was canceled after one season. So how cognizant are you of, you know, kind of the backing yourself into the corner, but also kind of worrying about, is this going to be the end, et cetera? Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely, it can haunt haunt you. Um, the it, Particularly in series three, I thought if we don't get to make a series four and then, you know, that final shot of Maeve just going off on the, on the bus and not knowing who Joy's father is, that, you know, that definitely sort of um, left me feeling a little bit panicked. But um uh, I yeah I try not to think about it in in too much of a, a final way because I think the story is just always changing and like you're you're kind of like uh, you're writing along with the characters and you're growing with the characters and the actors and um, yeah everything is always in a state of flux. Do you have a number of a particular number of seasons you'd like to to get and tell the story with? 
No, I, I, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe it will go on for until they're in their sixties. <laughs> Sex education. I love that. But, I'm here for the- <laughs> for the elderly. <laughs> it would it would be like the it would be like the Seven Up series only as a scripted comedy about sex. Why not? Makes yeah. sense. <laughs> now the first two the first couple seasons of the show were very much about sex positivity. And and this season feels a lot more like it was about kind of the backlash and particularly the sort of shaming that sometimes comes in response to sex positivity. I'm, I'm curious if you guys faced any backlash to the first couple seasons that either inspired or informed kind of the shift of, of tone or approach. Um, I think that the shift in tone um, didn't come from any sort of like external um, feedback to the show. I think, um, you know, we've always felt like we wanted to be this um, celebration of body positivity and like sex positivity. But I think for me, I felt that it was important to also acknowledge that, um, you know, unfortunately we don't live in that sort of utopia version of the world yet. And even though a lot of those conversations are like moving on and um you know people are talking more about consent and desire and female pleasure um there's still a lot of resistance to some of these conversations and I felt it was important that the show acknowledged that but you know we're always in a situation where any show that features teens and sexuality there'll be a certain corner of the world that will freak out about it and you know that's just I guess the way it's always been probably people terrified that young people are having sex uh, but I was wondering though if you guys had felt any even if it's just a small corner of the audience of people saying this is a dangerous show because it's you know talking about these things we don't want anyone talking about etc. I'm sure that those conversations um are happening about the show um <laughs> I sort of feel like most of the the feedback that I get about it is um actually that people are quite surprised once they sort of start watching it that it you know they think it's going to be quite graphic and in your face and and obviously there are a few there are some moments where it is but it's got quite a sweet heart and um and that it's actually really about communication and sort of human connection um, and I hear a lot of, um, you know, parents who are watching the show in one room and then their teenagers are watching it in a different room. They usually don't watch it together, but they'll sort of have a conversation about the subject matter, like at a different time. But yeah, I mean, I'm I'm sure that there is probably some conversations about, you know, it being like the devil show um, somewhere on the internet, <laughs> but I haven't, uh, I haven't engaged with it. <laughs> Yeah, it's pro- probably a good plan. <laughs> but but you're not, so you're not the kind of person who seeks out those dark corners uh, because you want to hear what the other side is saying. I, I try I try not to because I think I've got quite an addictive personality. So I would I'd be I would have fallen down that Reddit hole. It wouldn't be good. <laughs> kind of staying on, on the same subject. I, I remember you know there was a great story that THR had with you talking about how the show's intimacy coordinator helped change its approach to love scenes. Um, I, I do wonder, though, how, how did the COVID protocols change things on a show that is so invested in intimacy and exploring those those stories? Um, it was a definite challenge. Um, and I think uh, we were one of the first shows in the UK to sort of go back into shooting, into filming. And um, our entire, you know, 
concept of the show is about sex and relationships and and people you know touching each other um so it was a it was a real challenge um and uh really the the cast and the crew just really had to sort of pull together and we used a lot of you know like bubbles and like far fewer people on set and skeleton crews and just did everything that we could to make sure that everybody was um safe but we also knew that um you know we couldn't we couldn't take away that core of the show because that is really at its heart what the show is is about I mean was there anything that you had that you specifically had to change or that you couldn't do I was really lucky actually with the writing in um that we managed to uh film every every scene you know as as it was written there wasn't really anything that had to change um I think you know obviously there was some sort of like rescheduling that happened and um you know we would I think we moved some scenes like towards the end of the shoot just um because there might have been some people that were more vulnerable and COVID was you know at a higher rate at a certain point but um everybody really just wanted to pull together and and um make the show happen now, I can't tell how much this is my perception and how much this is reality, but I feel like the way that you guys have approached sex scenes has shifted over the three seasons. That maybe in the first season or maybe just the first half of the first season, there was more nudity, perhaps there was more traditional depiction of sex and sort of the ways we, we were seeing it on screen. And while the number of scenes of intimacy haven't changed the ways that you guys have approached showing them and depicting them has has does that seem that way in your mind does it seem like there's been a a change of ideology and how you wanted to treat those scenes that's interesting i think um i think from my perspective with nudity i i don't think that um you necessarily need nudity to you know create a sex scene that is intimate and, um, you know, funny or, um, sexy or so I am quite specific when I'm writing the scripts about, um, you know, uh, like how much nudity there needs to be because I don't, yeah, I don't think it's necessary. And, and I also think, you know, um, for actors who are like performing those scenes, that stuff is just going to be out there you know, forever. And I think like for me, uh, my rule with the sex scenes is um, it has to be telling me something new about the characters. It has to be pushing the story forward. Um, I don't want a sex scene to be there, you know, just for the sake of it. Um, it has to be contributing to the story in some way. I, I feel like the season's only actual partial nudity related to the non-binary characters and to that arc. And and that was purely character, not in any way um you know, sex. So it's intimacy, but a diff an entirely different kind of of intimacy. How calculated right, uh, yeah, was that? About a, a about a tie, which is we should absolutely know because that's kind of incredible. Yeah, I think um, that that particular bit of storytelling felt. Uh, you know, we 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 wanted to make sure that it felt as authentic as possible, and that we were really kind of getting into into those characters' um, minds. And obviously, we were exploring. Uh, dysphoria through um, those that that, that particular storyline, so it felt important to um, yeah make that feel kind of like real and authentic. But I think also making sure that it didn't feel like it was coming from uh, an outside gaze, like it, it needed to feel like those characters weren't being objectified in that moment. 
Um, I, I do want to ask too, you know, there was obviously a, a pretty significant executive change at Netflix last year, um, with Bella replacing Cindy Holland. I, I do wonder, you know, how did the show change, if at all, under Bella? And was this the first time that you'd worked with her? Our um, particular setup has been quite interesting because we um, we are a UK um, show and um, we've had American producers on the show, but then we also, you know, work... Um, uh, work with the the UK kind of team and it and it's really a, a very collaborative effort and uh I've been very lucky because two of the Netflix producers um Alex Saypot and Sophie Klein have been on the series from series one and um all the way through to series three so um I think because of that I haven't felt any you know real shift or change so talking a bit more about the different topics that you addressed this season. We talked a little bit about the non-binary uh, storyline. And then there's also the, you know, the the very specific storyline about the gay underground culture and the legality of, of homosexuality in, in Nigeria. When did you decide that those were things that you wanted to address and wanted to address this head on this season? Eric's storyline about going back to Nigeria, um, that came to me quite early on. Um, I took that idea into the writer's room for series three. I thought that it would be a really interesting thing to explore, um, you know, him reconnecting with that part of his identity and, um, you know, seeing family members that he hasn't seen for a really long time. Um, and then we worked with, um, an amazing writer called Temi Wilkie, who, uh, was in our writer's room and, um, and she, you know, related very strongly to elements of, of uh, that storyline with Eric. And, um, you know, she has Nigerian connections herself. And it, I think it then became like a, a very personal bit of storytelling um, for her in the show. And then with the non-binary character, I just felt like it, you know, we were three series in. It was incredibly important that we had some trans um, slash non-binary representation in the show but like with all of the queer representation in the show I wanted to make sure that um, you know we're not just ticking a box these characters have to have you know other things going on you know in their life other kind of relationships and um, and uh, I wanted to explore a relationship where you meet someone and you just have a very instant connection and you're very drawn to that person because I think so often with romances, it's always like love, hate, or like there's always a kind of push and pull. And there's sometimes in life you do just meet someone and you, you're just instantly drawn to them. And that's what I wanted to explore with Jackson and Cal. And then obviously as we developed the storyline with the various non-binary consultants, um, it became clear that that was going to be quite a complicated story. And we were really going to look at like, what does that mean for Jackson? Is, is he going to be in a queer relationship? How does he identify? And then also, what kind of emotional labor does Cal want to do on Jackson's behalf? Tell us a bit more about the about the consultants and what those conversations are like, because obviously you want to still have the flexibility to tell the story in the way you want to tell it, but you also want to tell it in a way that's truthful and responsible and honest. You know, how, how do you find what the correct avenue is to do both of those things at once? I found it a very positive experience. Um, we worked with a consultant called Jodie Mitchell um, throughout series three. Um, 
And I just found that every time I had a conversation with them about Cal, it it became more and more nuanced, more and more interesting. And and actually the questions that were raised because um, of the specificity that Jodie was bringing to those conversations just made it the drama better. And I think that whatever the idea of the story that I would have had in my head without talking to a consultant would be like no way as interesting um, because once you bring that specificity in, it just, um, yeah, it just brings so much depth. And um, yeah, I, I found it like a, a really eye-opening experience actually working with Jodie on, on Cal's, Cal's storyline. How were, how were you hooked up with them? Was that something that you knew that you would need to have for your own sort of security on this? Or did somebody say, maybe you want to bring in this person? I knew that um, once I decided um, that I wanted to uh, introduce a non-binary character, I knew that it was going to be very important to to bring on a consultant because at that point we didn't have a, a non-binary writer, you know, in, in the writer's room. And I think just having that that voice is just like incredibly important. And I, and I didn't want it to feel... Uh, like I would just get to the end of the writing process and then get their feedback. I wanted, I wanted Jodie to be very involved like all the way through that process. And then once we cast, um, Dua who plays Cal, um, we also started having, um, quite in-depth conversations with them as well. And, um, and obviously Dua is very different from Cal, but, um, has also had some of the same lived experiences. So it was really about, um, yeah, just kind of digging digging into that as as deeply as possible to make sure that it, it feels true. And do you have, do you have a non-binary writer for season four? As you kind of set up set the stage to explore that storyline so much more. Yeah, um, yes, we do. We have a, a, a brilliant um, non-binary writer for series four, which has been uh, yeah great. I love the Jackson and Cal storyline. It feels really fresh and, and like something that I haven't really seen before, you know, but it, that's also just, I'm going to fangirl here for a second, which I rarely do, but I love the show so very, very much. And the season is, you know, season three was, you know, hand, hands down my favorite so far. Um, and I, obviously you kind of alluded to um, the cliffhanger um, here. And for any of our listeners who haven't already watched watch the season three finale, you might want to skip ahead because I'm going there. Um, so knowing how much runway you have left with the show, are Maeve and Otis endgame? Because the way that the finale leaves it, you're just, you're, you're setting the stage for that. We've been waiting three seasons and you're teeing it up and then it's, you're, you're right there and then she's on a bus. It feels like you could never give people what they want. I feel like you, <laughs> once the, once the couple get together, and everything everything falls apart but I'm not saying that they're necessarily not endgame but I think that uh, they've got a few complications that they need to work through such as distance they have some distance that they're going to have to work, work through <laughs> in a future yeah, series I, absolutely uh, I remember uh, an interview with Shonda Rhimes years ago when she said happy people make boring characters and she's not wrong but Given where, you know, as you said, the distance, obviously, Maeve is off to to America to study abroad. Have you thought about doing a spinoff or kind of, you know, a, maybe like a, a short form to limited series, two or three episodes of Maeve and her experience studying in America and then 
having that air between seasons three and four of, of Sex Education. I'm sure Netflix would love to do a spinoff of your show. That'd be so cool. Um, yeah, if they want to let me write that, <laughs> I would be uh, I would be very into that. My brain's just gone to like who would be my who would be the guest, the American guest stars in uh, in Maeve's. Uh, standalone series uh but I actually to be honest I really want to do a spin-off series of um Lily's animations Lily's uh comic books that's where my uh spin-off uh heart is <laughs> I love that so much I, but since we are talking about spin-offs I mean Netflix greenlit one of on my block and there's Bridgerton got a spin-off after and and The Witcher got a got spin-offs after one season apiece you know, considering how big this show is, you got, I mentioned BAFTA recognition, you know, in the UK, but, and, and the other piece of it too is, you know, high school shows always kind of wind up with, you know, facing that conundrum of, well, what happens after they graduate? Where does the show go? Does the show end? How do we continue it? And then you get Beverly Hills 90210, the college years, which was, you know, I'll let you, everyone make their own judgments about that. But, you know, how much have you thought about what like realistic spinoffs that that you you know have has have you had those conversations with Netflix about expanding the show, whether it is with you know Lily and her and her comic books, which would also be amazing, even as an animated show. Um, I haven't had I haven't had those conversations. Um, I think, I think you know the the show is such an ensemble piece now. It's sort of grown into that. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm constantly having to fight the urge to just add more and more characters. Um, I don't know why I have the urge to do that, but it just, it feels like it's in my nature. Like something always starts with three characters and then by the end, I'm sort of like, oh my God, there's like 25, 25 people in this scene. Um, and yeah, I don't know. I, I just, I love all the characters and I think um, it'd be very interesting to see some of them maybe at like university, but uh, I don't know. I think they're still in school at the moment. We have to stay there for a while, <laughs> a while longer. Yeah, no complaints from me here. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's the funny thing about the show because it has this potentially massive ensemble because you have an entire school of potential characters and you have over the first couple seasons introduced them kind of one at a time, you know, their, their individual sexual problems, etc., when you know that you have a situation where you need to bring in a character, how do you decide when you want to introduce an entirely new character versus when you're like, oh, we have this character in our back pocket from season one who we introduced in half an episode. Let's give them a full arc. I think um, it's been interesting, particularly um, in series three with Ruby, for example, um, who I think up until this point has been a little bit lower in the mix. Um and but I, I always felt like I knew what her backstory was. I knew, you know, why she's got the armor that she that she does and like um, you know, what her home life is. And I and I knew that I I really wanted to explore that. Um, but it's just about finding the right moment and like the right time to sort of know that you can bring one of those uh more background characters like, you know, to to the foreground and, and take that time to explore them. Um, and then I think with the newer characters, you know, quite often, so like with Cal, for example, they enter the story with Jackson, they sort of become part of Jackson's storyline. And then obviously my hope is then, uh, that, you know, when we move on to the next series, they will then be able to take up more time and space and have their own, you know, fully fleshed out 
arc because I think that's really important. You you mentioned Ruby, and that brings up I would say one of my one of my favorite things about the show. I'm gonna I'm gonna be like Leslie, and I'm gonna fangirl yes! now. Uh, is gotcha. is the way that the the show takes characters who. I don't want to say they're necessarily villains, but they're definitely antagonists. And they're not just in some cases casual antagonists. They're they're, you know, like Adam was a genuine antagonist in the first season. And you make us care about them in unexpected ways. I don't think if you'd told me in season one that I would have been in, as invested in Adam, his father and Ruby as I was in season three, I'd have believed you. What are the challenges of doing that? And who has been the most difficult character to flesh out from antagonist to protagonist as you've gone along? I think Adam is an interesting character because he's he's always been very close to my heart. Um, he, he represents a lot of men that I've known in my life who I think, um, you know, just really ha- are suffering with toxic masculinity basically and being brought up in that kind of environment and I wanted to tell a story where a character like that can go in a different direction and like can connect with himself and and try and find a a different way in the world um so I think I always knew that there were parts of Adam that I loved um but in series one and series two I think most of the audience were still you know, very much seeing him as, as one thing. And, um, yeah, I, I couldn't stand Adam at first and now he's one of my favorite characters. Yeah. And I think that, you know, I think I've been lucky enough to be given the time to tell that story. Like, I don't, you know, you, I don't think you could take a bully character like that and get people to care about him in one series. I've been lucky enough that I've been able to tell that story over three. And I think by the time you start to really feel for him in series three, it's, um, it's been earned, you know, because you've spent lots of time and hours getting to know this person, um, you know, but at the same time, I think, you know, he's still, he's still got a lot of, he's still got a lot of rage, I think, and he still needs to work out how he's gonna, um, you know, I don't know. I, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I haven't completely fleshed out what's going to happen to him next, but uh, like what he's going to do with all of that rage, I'm, I'm not quite sure. How often when you introduce characters then who are antagonistic or potentially antagonistic, do you consider, okay, but in but two series down the line, this person could be heroic in some way? So, for example, a character like uh, Jemima Kirk's Hope, I would say that she is probably a more traditional villain this season. But I also assume, especially since you've given her the fertility story arc, that you have the empathetic side to her. Do you see that as a character who you want to explore further? Or did she serve her purpose in this season and onward? Um, I mean, I, I would, I'd love to explore that character further. I think um, she, she, she was a, a very difficult character to write, actually. Probably the, the most, um, one of the most challenging characters that I've written. Um you know, for me, what I found interesting with that character um, is, you know, she she's really emblematic of a certain type of white feminism and that she, um, you know, uh, like in some ways she can be very kind. She's quite kind to Maeve. I think in some ways she thinks she's doing the right thing for the students, but then she has these real blind spots and is actually very much an oppressor to uh a lot of you know 
the students, students like Cal and um, Jackson and Viv. Um, and uh, I think when you're writing an antagonist, antagonistic character, I think the thing that is the hardest is that you, as the writer, you've got to care about them. Otherwise, um, they'll end up being completely like one dimensional. So I had to try and work out what her worldview is and why she thinks what she's doing is right. But then also be able to step outside of it and go, you know, this is a character that is actually causing uh, a great amount of damage to people, even though she she also herself is is a victim of of her gender in some ways as well, which is what I wanted to explore with the fertility element. Um, you know, she struggles as well, but she also hurts a lot of people. And the other side to turning an antagonist into a protagonist is that you have Otis, who is unquestionably our hero as we start the story, but Otis has hurt a lot of people over the course of this show, and I don't think the show cuts him any slack at all for that. I think the show is trying to teach Otis some valuable lessons. I'm I'm curious what you've learned about how much you can get away with with what that character is and what he's done because of the empathetic place we started with him in. <laughs> um, yeah, someone I think wrote wrote an article a couple of days ago that said, um, "When are we all going to realize that Otis is actually the the greatest villain <laughs> of sex education?" Um, which I thought was funny because he's also the the character that is the closest to me as a person. So I was sort of like, "Ooh, <laughs> what is that saying?" Um, but uh, yeah, I think like he he definitely you know, he gets it wrong so often and he can be so mean to his mom and he can, sometimes he can be like a terrible friend and he's always messing it up with the the women in his life. But um, that also feels very like true to the teenage experience. And he's, you know, he's, he's trying to pretend that he's so grown up, but actually he's just as much of a mess as, as everyone else. And, um, uh, you know, I do think he's got a kind heart, but, uh, he, he definitely has the ability to uh, hurt people as well. And where did the mustache come from? <laughs> seems seems like an important seems like an important part of treating Otis as a villain was giving him that mustache <laughs> the, the, at the start the, of the, the season. The villain twirling mustache, not quite that. <laughs> I just feel like it's such a phase that young men go through. Like my brother is going to kill me for saying this, but he he went through a phase from about like seventeen to nineteen where I just thought what is that that you are growing on your face? Because it is not a full mustache. It is not a full beard. It's just like a little layer of fluff and it's not cool. <laughs> but he was like, he really <laughs> hung on to it for a long time. And I just always thought that that was very funny. So I wanted to um, give that to Otis, but it, it only lasts for about an episode and a quarter. <laughs> Um, you know, you did mention Otis and his relationship with his mom. You know, obviously Gillian Anderson just won an Emmy for The Crown um, and that she hasn't been recognized here, as, you know, to, at least domestically is criminal. Um, I do wonder for season four, though, how how will being a parent to a newborn change Jean? Um, yeah, that's um, one of the storylines that I'm probably the most excited about, um, you know, getting into. I think... Uh, what she's very much revealed in series three is that um, she's very afraid of not being that permanent parental figure to Otis anymore. And she's very scared about him sort of leaving home and 
that they're not going to have that very intense bond anymore. Um, so I think, you know, where, where Jean is at her most interesting is definitely in her, in her blind spots. And um, it'll be interesting to see how that gets projected onto little baby Joy. Uh, yeah, as she is called. <laughs> we talked a little bit about the shame subplot of the season. And I'm curious when you have Hannah Waddingham, the shame nun, of course, from Game of Thrones as part of your ensemble. And, how and Emmy winner for Ted Lasso. Let's not forget. Also, also Emmy winner. How calculatedly did you want to make sure you got at least one scene where she came in and said shame a couple times just as a wink? Um, oh, we were so lucky that we got Hannah um, to be in episode eight. I uh, would have loved for her to have been in, um, you know, some some more scenes uh, with uh, Jackson in series three, but she's become uh, very busy and just she's so talented and, and brilliant. And it's just been amazing to see everything that's happening for her. But I'm also hoping that, uh, yeah, she will come back and do more for us in series four. Because I feel like there's more to explore there, particularly with that um, uh, Jackson and his mum's relationship. Absolutely. Um, and if she's not available, have, would you ever consider recasting? Not that I want to see that or anyone would want to see that, but. I don't, I always feel the recasting thing. Um, I don't know if it happens in America in the soaps as much, but in Australia where I'm from, there was like a couple of quite famous like recastings that were just very strange. <laughs> where it was like someone had been playing this part for basically 15 years and then suddenly one day you turn the TV on and someone completely different was playing it. They think it sort of gives me the shivers, <laughs> the idea of recasting anyone. So uh, yeah, no, I wouldn't recast Hannah. <laughs> and I want to touch at least briefly on the music in the show because it's another of my favorite elements uh the the soundtrack in particular and this season it felt like there were a couple times where you guys were using specific songs that were perfect for the situation but also already have very specific references within television and film you know you use zuby zuby zoo people are going to think of of madman you use save me people are also going to think of magnolia i'm i'm curious if that's something that you have in your mind you know i want to be able to tie this into a kind of soundtrack cinematic universe or if it's just i really like this show i really want to use it and i'm not worried if people think of magnolia or madman um, I think we use music that gives you the, you know, the emotion. Um, we had it in series two. Um, we used the Sufjan Stevens song that was in, uh, Call Me By Your Name. And, um, there were a few people on the internet that were very unhappy about that because, you know, you, how dare you take it from, um, Call Me By Your Name and put it in something else. Um, and actually in some ways I kind of agree because I, Call Me By Your Name is amazing. Um, but yeah, I think you've just got to find the right track that gives you that kind of emotional feeling. And I think often the reason that certain songs have been used in other things is is for that reason. Um, and Ben Taylor, who's our um, director, he is um, an absolute like film wizard. He knows everything about film history and um, films. And so I think he's also sometimes is tapping into that kind of feeling of like nostalgia as well and in quite a knowing way, um, probably more so than me. Well, this interview could probably go on forever because I have many, many more questions about these characters and storylines, but we are running out of time here. Um, but we, so we do like to conclude these interviews with the same question. What have you been watching and enjoying? 
Oh, what have I been watching? Um, oh, I'm just going to be the same answer as everyone, but I just finished The White Lotus and it was just just one of the best things I've ever seen. It was so good and so funny. And just all of those characters were sort of just deliciously evil. <laughs> and I loved it. And I was so sad when it ended. Um, so, yeah, that's what I've been watching. <laughs> Great. Well, Laurie, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, lovely to join. The third season of Sex Education is now up on Netflix. Number five. As usual, we wrap things up with the Critics' Corner. Among this week's major new launches are John Wells has his streaming show debut with Made on Netflix, On My Block returns for its fourth and final season, also on Netflix, Peacock debuts One of Us is Lying, Ghosts arrive on CBS, and HBO Max launches 10-Year-Old Tom. Dan, what's you, what you got? Lots of stuff. Only had time to get to some of it because lots of stuff. Uh, you can already on on THR see my reviews of 10-year-old Tom and the problem with Jon Stewart. Uh, I really like 10-year-old Tom. It is from Steve Dildarian, who did Life and Times of Tim on HBO way, way back in the day. And I really loved that animated show and, and wish that more people, A, watched it and B, remembered it and had given him subsequent shows. Uh, so if you watched Life and Times of Tim, I can safely guarantee you will probably like uh, 10-year-old Tom. The, the premise to just sort of briefly break it down is Tom is 10 years old. Okay, that was pretty much the premise. Uh, no, t- Tom is a Tom is a very very normal ten year old kid who keeps being manipulated by adults and other kids in his world because he is a very open person. He is generally well intentioned, but things tend to go wrong around him uh, with hilarious and downward spiraling consequences. And so it's a little bit cringy, but cringy in a well-intentioned and sweet way. And uh, it's it really is just straightforward Steve Dildarian humor, but with a lot of great guest voices. You have uh, Gillian Jacobs as one of uh, Tom's friends. You have John Malkovich as the school's teacher slash extracurricular advisor, and he is absolutely hilarious. Uh it's it's just really good, and you'll know pretty quickly, even if you haven't seen Life and Times of Tim, if you're being amused by it, because it's a very, very dry show. Uh, but I found it very funny, very sweet, and I recommend that one strongly. Less enthusiastic about the problem with Jon Stewart. Uh, to me, critics have been sent two episodes. The one with veterans and talking about burn pits and the VA's lack of help for veterans with certain chronic conditions, I, I thought was very good. It, it had a direct imperative. It had a good structure wherein John Stewart established the quote unquote problem in the first segment and then did a panel discussion with six veterans and advocates in the second and then in the third went to talk to the head of the VA. And so that to me feels like a structure that's workable for a show. The Second episode that they sent, which has a more nebulous focus on freedom and people who say that things like vaccine mandates and whatever relate to authoritarian regimes and Nazis, to me, came across as kind of warmed over Daily Show or more likely half-baked Last Week Tonight or um, Full Frontal with Samantha Bee or whatever. And so it didn't work as well. It came across to me feeling smug and kind of ill-focused. So it'll be interesting to see going forward. 
you know, whether they choose to be more like the first show or more like the second show. Also, I suspect some people will prefer the second version of the show because really what they want is warmed over daily show. So that's fine. Um, the big Friday release probably is made and, uh, more than anything made is a showcase for star marker quality it, and a, and a wonderful showcase for her. Um, people know her from many, many things, both that wonderful Spike Jones uh, perfume commercial where she danced like a crazy person in a single take, uh, which is still one of my favorite pieces of advertising. It's a it's just a brilliant commercial and a brilliant showcase for a certain kind of performer. But also she was nominated for an Emmy for Fosse Verdon, etc. Uh, here she plays a young mother who leaves her abusive boyfriend and finds herself caught in the web of American poverty and the web of bureaucracy that makes it difficult to find support within systems designed to support people. And in that respect, it is often depressing and miserable, but often tries to be hope, you know, hopeful. It tries to have a sense of humor and it helps that she has a, a spectacular dry sense of humor. And, Really, she is just great. She's the reason to watch this. I feel as if Netflix had the ill fortune to premiere this show in a year where the Golden Globes don't exist because 100% she would be nominated for a Golden Globe. And I would say 60% she would win a Golden Globe for this performance because that's exactly the sort of star-making performance that the HFPA used to love to drool and slobber over. Oh, well, that's what they get for being racist and grifty and other stuff. Uh, I, I have reservations about it. I, I think that there are conversations about poverty that it has that are fascinating and not being had on TV. And I am so glad that those conversations are being had. But I also think that there are conversations about race and privilege that building a show about a character like this, a character who works as a cleaning lady to try to keep her family afloat and whatever, um, and that builds the story around an extraordinarily beautiful white woman, need to acknowledge because she's going through this world that she lives in, and basically every person who facilitates her existence within the world is a person of color. And so she has a boss who is um, who is Latinx. She keeps interacting with kindly black people and Latina people who help her and push her along. And no one at any point mentions that there are stratifications and hierarchies within the way that the system treats people and that poverty is obviously a problem that goes across racial lines. There are white people in poverty. This is clearly true. And there are cleaning ladies who are beautiful young white people, clearly. But there there are different ways that the system looks at different people. And I, I needed a line or two of dialogue with someone acknowledging where privilege fits into this world. Um, but but I still found it very watchable. And it's it's not as depressing as you might worry that it is at first. Um, and I haven't watched One of Us is Lying. Maybe next week I will get to that. Uh, but I did watch the first episode of Ghosts on CBS. It is totally a premise pilot. It is, it is very much, you know, where it gets you at the end of 22 minutes is to the actual series. Uh, but it is the story of two young people who, um, who move into 
into what is a genially haunted house. And uh, that's that's just what it is. And uh, the stars are very, very, very likable in this. Uh, Rose McIver, who I loved on iZombie, is, is very good here. And Utkarsh Hembukar is excellent as her boyfriend. And I think that they're a really likable couple. And a lot of the ghosts are, are funny. A lot of the the jokes are are broad. Uh, you can see the original BBC format that this is based on on HBO Max. Uh, but I, you know, I can see how this would work. I think in a perfect world, it would be the kind of thing that would play really, really well with uh, with evil on CBS. But oh, well, um, so maybe someday Ghost will find its way to uh, Paramount Plus and that will be where it will live. Uh, I, I think it's I think it's worth checking out. I think there are there are chuckles to the pilot and then you can go, OK, I would I would watch this show going forward. So. That is where I am on Ghosts, likable enough, and I think I'll watch two more episodes this weekend before doing an actual review. Well, for more of Dan's weekly recommendations, be sure to subscribe to THR's Now See This newsletter. This feels like a good place to wrap things up. Thank you, as always, for listening to TV's Top 5, the Hollywood Reporter's TV podcast. Be sure to subscribe on all of your various podcasting platforms. If you like us, rate us. If you really like us, write a little reviewy thing because it does help spread the word of mouth. We're always happy to chat with you guys on Twitter if you want to let us know what's working, what isn't working, etc. But if you have questions for future mailbag segments, you can email us at tvstop5 at thr.com. That's tvstop5, the numeral 5, at thr.com. Until next week, Leslie. Until next week, Dan. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.